You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators. Wally Lamb is the author of She's Come Undone, The Hour I First Believed, and I Know This Much Is True. Two of these books were featured as selections for Oprah's Book Club. Wally Lamb is the recipient of the Connecticut Center for the Book's Lifetime Achievement Award. He was the director of the Writing Center at the Norwich Free Academy in Norwich, Connecticut, and he holds a BA in Education, an MA in English from the University of Connecticut, and an MFA in Writing from Vermont College. I worked with a a really wonderful writer named Gladys Swan, a a teacher of mine. She said, don't write for other people, whether they're kids or adults. She says, write for yourself, satisfy you know, your own needs and your own curiosity. And then she looked me squarely in the eye and she said, go back and read myth. Those stories have outlasted the test of time because people need them to be told over and over and over again. They illuminate the human condition. And damned if she wasn't right. And I began to see those tales and those archetypes as the backbone for the stories that that I could tell with a contemporary spin. I'll Take You There centers on Felix, a film scholar who runs a Monday night movie club in what once was a vaudeville theater. One evening while setting up a film in the projectionist booth, he's confronted by the ghost of Lois Weber, a trailblazing motion picture director from Hollywood's silent era. Lois invites Felix to revisit and in some cases relive scenes from his past as they are projected onto the cinema's big screen. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and I'm so happy to be sitting here today with Wally Lamb, who's here to talk about his new book, I'll Take You There. Well, I appreciate it, and I'm sure uh, I'm sure all the writers do. You know that you, you know, you sort of write these things in a vacuum, and you, you don't know, you know, they, you don't know if they're any good or not, and you, and uh, you know, you hope for the best, but then you know, to have, you know, to hand it over and have folks like you, you know, sort of take it and run with it, it's really, it's 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 quite a quite a great thing and an honor. So let me ask you. Let's just start right there. Is it true that really sincerely, every single time you start the next one? You're you're uncertain as to whether or not you've got a good one in you. you yeah. you're not convinced yet. I am not. No, I'm uh, I'm pretty neurotic about that kind of thing. I've always been a warrior, even when I was a little kid. Starting a novel is really difficult for me. Um, you know, making something out of nothing. But um, I have to kind of like get to know the the particularly the main character that I'm working with on a deeper and deeper and deeper level. And the only way I can do that is by writing in that in that voice of that character. Now, I've never written a third-person viewpoint, uh, but um, I don't think I ever could because, um, for me, the big kick is to sort of, you know, shed my own skin Mm -hmm. while I'm working and inhabit somebody else's skin and feel what what it's like to live, you know, as that person. Mm -hmm. And so, you know... Uh, I, I start out with a voice, and, I, and the voice is telling me something about himself or herself, and um, and I have to sort of make you know uh, honor my daily appointment with my writing desk uh, to to keep finding and discovering who this person is and what story they want to tell me. So, uh, do you walk around for days and weeks and months? with this sort of ruminating in your head and then you sort of 
do, do you just sort of st- sit and sort of start to write in that voice, or are you starting to plot simultaneously? I'm not plotting yet. You're not plotting uh, at all. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to know the voice. Um, I'll tell you a little story about uh, when I started my third novel, uh, which, which is uh, The Hour I First Believed. And I had just come off uh, two very wonderful and exciting rides on the roller coaster called The Oprah yeah. Book Club. Well, um, now it's time for me to write the third novel. And um, I had gone from having, you know, a modest number of readers to now I have millions of readers. And I was scared to death to uh, start a, a, a new novel because, um, you know, A, you know, the uh, the price of the book was, had gone up. They were, you know, they were going to pay me a lot more money to do this. And B, I had a deadline that I knew I mm. w- had to honor and so forth. And, um, and C... My um, lack of confidence was. Uh, I used to. I used to think uh, that I, you know, oh, I, I must be humble, but I think it's just insecurity, you know. <laughs> um, so I remember being in a real panic and having my win- wheels spin, and you know, I thought maybe I'll give back the advance money and go back into teaching, and I was I was really scared um, to write the first couple of sentences because I didn't want to disappoint people. And then I went down. I was uh, I went down to New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, to something called the uh, Tennessee Williams Festival. I was uh, I was one of the visiting writers at that thing, and I was in really bad shape. And I went to the um, uh, the big uh, uh, cathedral of St. Louis and uh, Saint Louis, and um, and I went in there, and I was alone in the church, uh, and uh, and I lit a candle. And I knelt and I said, uh, I don't know who I was talking to or what I was talking to, but I said, I'm really scared. Whoever you are, whatever you are, I don't know if you know you could be you'd be you could be the ghost of, um, you know, of Tennessee Williams yeah. for all I know. I said, but um, can you help me find a story? And then um, I flew home and uh, I started that week, and that eventually turned into. The hour I first believed. Okay, so that reminds me of something that I I wrote down. It was a description of you, and I think it came from the New York Times, where they refer to you as a modern-day Dostoevsky, whose characters struggle not only with their respective past, but with a mocking, sadistic God in whom they don't believe, but to whom they turn, nevertheless, in times of trouble. Wow. <laughs> well, that does sound like what I just said, but uh, but I don't know where Dostoevsky got in there. I you know I should be so lucky as to, as to be a, a writer in his of his caliber. But uh, yeah, I um, I I I do have I do have faith that there is something that is larger than us that is somehow directing us, probably in ways that we can't understand. I was raised Catholic and, um, you know, in a very sort of traditional religion and so forth. But these days, I tend to find my faith in other people. Mm. And uh, Yeah, you've talked about the power of grace. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's something that I'm still learning. And I very often am surprised by people in pleasant ways. I live part-time in New York City now, and uh, right around the corner from us— there's a guy who um, he's not homeless, but he, you know, he's always asking for money because he's hungry. And um, and so one day, I 
I, I gave him a dollar as usual. And then I said, so what's your name? Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, my name is Les. And um, I said, my name is Wally. And, and we got to talking. And um, that's he's become a, a, a very important person to me. Um, and uh, so that's what I mean. I mean, they're, you know, I, I think... I think God is in other people. Do you think that that empathy is is sort of a muscle and that we sort of have to we have to build it up and then we have to use it to sustain it? Because it sounds like you you consistently whether it's in the characters that that you share with us or the work that you do with your writing programs um in the prison or just in your everyday walking down the street, it sounds like that you practice empathy on a regular basis. I think empathy is a muscle. And I would agree with you. I think uh, I think that's exactly the right metaphor for that. And you're talking to somebody who hasn't been to the gym in about four or five <laughs> days now, so I'm feeling a little bit guilty as we as we speak. But um, uh, but yeah, I think uh, I think it has to be. It has to be exercised so that we don't fall into um, uh, selfishness, yeah. And uh, because I think that I think that leads to unhappiness. Yeah, and I think as a parent, my most important job is to model that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I am. Uh, I do go to a church. I am a Unitarian Universalist, oh, and really? I mm-hmm. tell them that they help me because. Every time we go there, other people model it. You, know, you can only go so far as a parent, and then at a certain point, you're spent, and you, right. you, you're not you're not demonstrating the very best that mm-hmm. humanity has to offer. But I, it's consistent that I know when we go over there, they see that in the approach to everything that's done over there. So mm-hmm. they reinforce, they help me reinforce that. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the point of the church. Also, that if if your church can can model empathy, then you're in the right place. Yeah, and you go there to, um, uh, you know, we, we all get depleted or right, spent, as exactly. you said. And I think, I think um, however we touch back or get back in touch with yes. faith of some kind, it's like uh, filling up the well again, you know, being able to go on. Yeah, to have a place like that's huge, so hugely important. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the importance of myth in your life and in your writing. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I was fortunate when I was uh, a high school kid to live in Norwich, Connecticut, which had not only the biggest uh, facility for the mentally ill in in this in our state, but also um, it uh, it housed uh, a high school um, that had its own museum. I think there's only wow. two of, two of them in the country. What kind and, of museum? Um, it's a, it's an art museum. There. Wow! It's a cast gallery and. Um, and then you know they have they have uh, changing exhibits too, um, celebrating mostly Connecticut artists that kind of thing. But um, but I loved that cast gallery because um, it was all these replicas of famous uh, classical Greek and Roman statuary, which is based on the myths. Now I was um, um, when I was a high school kid, I was planning on a future not in writing but in art. Uh, I, in fact, when I started college, uh, oh, is that I was what you studied? Art major. Yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. What kind of art were you? A fine art person? Fine arts. Yeah. yeah wow. Yeah. And uh, I, and when I was a kid, I always used to draw. But anyway, and when I when I went to this high school, um, you know, one of the one of the, the favorite things to do is to go to the museum and, you know, um, do sketches or mm-hmm. or uh, yep. watercolors, whatever of the of the statuary there. So you had, you know. Um, Weeping Niobe, whom the gods had slain, and you had 
uh, writhing Laocoon, who's being strangled by snakes. Uh, he was a um, he was a seer. He had the gift and the curse of prophecy, um, and um, and so there were all these all these statues that were telling stories. Now. Um, then I grow up and I become an English teacher in, a high, in that same high school. In the same high school. And um, and then, oh, but before that, I should say that before that, I went off to college and I would talk about the the museum at, at the at our high school, and uh, the other kids in the dorm would say, "What? You had a museum?" And it's like I thought all high schools had museums. Oh, you know? That's how, uh, uh, you know, that's how uh, ingrown I was. Yeah. Anyway, um, so then you know, uh, I I start writing. And um, and I worked with a, a really wonderful writer um, named Gladys Swan, a, te- a teacher of mine, and she said to me, "What do you want? What do you What do you want to get out of this? What do you, Why do you want to do this?" And I said, "Well, I said, uh, and I hadn't asked myself that, uh, and I was really new as a fiction writer, and so I had to kind of fake an answer, and I said, um, "Well, I'd like to, you know, I think I'd like to write a book that um, high school kids would read." because they want to read it, not because they have to read it. And I thought that was a pretty good That's improvisation, pretty good. but she made a face and she didn't like it. So I said, what's the matter? And she said, don't write for other people, whether they're kids or adults. She says, write for yourself, satisfy you know, your mm. own needs and your own curiosity. And I'm sure I looked at her kind of strangely as if you know I had this dopey look on my face. And, she sa- and then she looked me squarely in the eye and she said, go back and read myth. Mm-hmm. And she said, those stories have outlasted the test of time because people need them to be told over and over and over again. They illuminate the human condition. And damned if she wasn't right. So I uh, I did. I, I, I studied. You know, I went back and I reread The Odyssey. It's different when you read it as an adult. Sure. Um, I read... Um, uh, Heinrich Zimmer and Joseph Campbell and all the all those anthropologists who look at look at myths and ancient stories, um, and um, you know I I began to see those tales and those archetypes as the backbone for the stories that you know that I could tell with that a contemporary tell. spin. Yeah. So, which leads us, let's talk about your new book, which we we've, we've been chatting about so many interesting things, but this book is so terrific. It's, I'll take you there. It it's the story of, of Felix, mm-hmm. who we we all know, and he he's running a, a Monday night movie club in an old vaudevillian theater. And one evening, he's there minding his own business. He's setting up the projector, getting ready for people to come in, and he's confronted by a ghost. And the ghost is based on a real person. It's it's Lois Weber, who you'll tell us more about. But she's basically a, a um, well, she was a director and mm-hmm. from uh, Hollywood's silent era, and she invites him to revisit and, in some cases, relive scenes from his past. And he, of course, is startling at the beginning, but he he starts to really look forward to to these to these encounters. And it's the story of Felix and the women in his life. Mm-hmm. So, tell us a little bit about those women. First of all, start with. Start with Lois, but also Francis and Verna and Eliza, and, and mm-hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit about the word feminism and and how that plays into this story. But I first want to talk a little bit about the the actual plot of the story. Okay. Um, well, Lois was a, a happy. It was a happy accident that I discovered who she was. Um, I hadn't known anything about her when I started writing this novel. 
Um, but I, uh, my, you know, Felix, if you know Felix, you probably know him from Wishing and Hope, an, an earlier novel that I wrote. And, um, and they made a movie of that. And the movie uh, pr was premiered at a, a wonderful old theater in New London, Connecticut called The Guard, G-A-R-D-E. And uh, it had been uh, a vaudeville house and also... Uh, it was built in in 1926, and um, it it began by showing what what were then called picture plays, silent mm. movies, and um, so uh, that was interesting to me. And then I was talking to the managers of the of this theater, and they said, "Oh yeah," they said, "We've um, we've had some people who have sighted ghosts here. Um, uh, two or three pe different people had seen the ghost of a little girl who's carrying a balloon. She's walking around holding a balloon." And um, somebody saw another ghost up in the mezzanine corner, and he um, he was was wearing what looked like a a, a war uniform uh, from about you know I think it was the um, the First World War or something like that. Anyway, I'm I'm not sure if I believe in ghosts or not, but um, I was intrigued with this, and so um, I started doing research on the Guard Theater, and uh, and lo and behold, I come across this name Lois Weber. And uh, it said that the first movie that they ever showed at the Guard Theater was a Lois Weber film, mm. that she was the producer and the director. Mm -hmm. And I'm scratching my head and thinking, gosh, there are so few opportunities for women in, in um, you know, those roles today. You mean in, in cinema's early years, there, you know, there were, there were women directors? So I, you know, I had stumbled upon this, you know, wealth of... Um, information about this woman who was really a mover and shaker in the business, but, um, you know, be probably because she was a woman, she, you know, she sort of fades into the woodwork in terms of Hollywood history, and everybody is lauding people like D.W. Griffith yep. and uh, Flo Ziegfeld and, and you know, those, and yeah. those, they were, you know, of course, the men were the geniuses, and the women were, um, you know, lucky to be given these opportunities. So, um so that that's where enter the the whole theme of feminism in the novel. So the dedication, hold on, I'm going to find it because you dedicate it to feminists everywhere of every era. And I, 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 when I was doing my research, I read a quote of yours that you said, "I grew up with with older sisters and older girl cousins who lived next door, and the only other boy on McKinley Avenue was a rock and snowball thrower named Vito, which didn't <laughs> exactly make him great playmate material." All of this is to say that from an early age, I became immune to the spell of, quote, the feminine mystique. <laughs> I've always felt comfortable among, sympathetic towards, and amused by females, and I am aligned and supportive of the tenets of feminism. Yeah. I think yeah. That's, that pretty much says it all, but I, I really, I love that. Because you can, first of all, you can completely see Vito. He was, you know, who would want to <laughs> hang around with him? Yeah. And I'm sure yeah, it was, he was much uh, more fun. <laughs> he was a terror, he, uh, and, he, and he was a, a much bigger kid. He, would, <laughs> he ended he up, was. In, he, was, he was in grade school in, in my, with, in my grade, but he had started school uh, with one of my older sisters who's four <laughs> years older. And so, yeah, he was intimidating size-wise, and man, he could peg a rock like nobody's business. <laughs> so, yeah, I was not a, I, I would stay in the house when Vito was around. <laughs> but it's nice, I mean, of course, there are there are many men such as yourself, but it, but it is nice to say, you, you know, this whole men are from Mars and women are from Venus, you know, I don't ascribe to that. I, I sort of feel like I understand these people. I am aligned with them. I'm. We share the same motivations. We share the same aspirations. And therefore, 
it, it's just kind of simple. And you get that from your writing. And you, we all come from men and women. <laughs> exactly. You know, we have, you know, so we have we have both of us. I uh, this is a little off topic, but um, the other day somebody said to me, um, "Do you know why men have nipples?" And I said, "Gee, I never thought about it, but no, I don't." And they said, "Well, because before." Um, you know, sexual characteristics lock in in utero. Um, you know, where it could be either you, one. It, it could be you know you you could be male or female or you know, um, and so you know, the body is preparing itself for what's going to come later in the development. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, it just goes to show, yeah, yeah, we're just not that far off. Yeah, yeah, but I think you do write. You know, you write your characters with sort of that. That basic assumption and that basic set of empathy. So tell us a little more about these these women in I'll Take You There. Tell us about Eliza and, and Francis and, and Verna. Yeah. Francis is uh, one of uh, Felix's sisters. Now, in Wishing and Hoping, the sisters, he has two sisters, Francis and Simone, and um, uh, they were more minor characters in this novel, but um, uh, in the you know, in the earlier novel in Wishing and Hoping, but in uh, I'll take you there. Francis sort of comes to the forefront. She is the also ran sister. She is the um, sort of hostile, mm. chubby yeah. sister of a beautiful sister. Right. And she really does uh, a psychological number on Felix. She, um, because she does not feel good about herself or because of her insecurities, she projects them onto uh, her younger brother. So um, she became a lot more interesting to me mm -hmm. in this novel than she had been in the earlier yeah. one. So her development and then later her uh, mental illness, she, she develops in an attempt to sort of, uh, you know, she's kind of like a, a square peg trying to fit into a round hole or whatever that expression is. Mm -hmm. um, and she decides that she needs to lose weight when she's a teenager. So she develops... Um, what we all now know as anorexia nervosa, but back in the you know in the early '60s, you know before the whole Karen Carpenter thing put it on the you know in the in a spotlight on it, you know people didn't know that no. much about that disease, yeah. and so um, so it's sort of she's sort of taking the whole family with her as far as you know suffering and fear and confusion and anger and all of those things. So the relationship between Felix and Francis is key in the story. Yeah. So often you write about those those sibling relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I love. I love. You know, I, I wrote about uh, sibling twin brothers yeah. in I Know This Much Is True. And I think that's probably it was probably a, a wish fulfillment thing because I remember when I was a kid, every year when you you know when they light the birthday candles and you wish for something, I always wished for a brother. Yeah. And I never you know I never got one. Um, and then I always always was envious of twins when I was growing up yeah. and fascinated by them. And I'm thinking, wow, that would be so cool to have your you know your built-in soulmate. Um, now not all twins feel that they're exactly. each other's soulmates by a long shot, but. Um, but anyway, so then I write. I grow up and I write this novel about you know twin brothers. Although um, you know, be careful what you wish for, right? Is, yeah, uh, because Very it's complex not a complex relationship. Yeah, 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 it's a it's a troubled it's a troubled brotherhood. Yeah. So let's talk just for a few minutes because I know you've got other people that are waiting to talk to you. You're so it's so fun to talk to you, and I thank you so much Thanks. for doing it. It's fun to talk to you too. But I want to talk to you about 
publishing. Because mm-hmm. I'm, it's, I'm it's interested when I speak to authors that have been published over a series of years and a series of books, I'm really curious to sort of ask them, what do you... What do you still find delightful about publishing? And and what is it that is, I mean, and just go ahead and be honest. Like, what is it that you find sort of frustrating or confounding about this? Because writing is one thing. Publishing is something, in, you know, sort of something entirely different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I've always been grateful that I um, was a teacher before I was a writer. Mm-hmm. I knew from when I, the time when I was a kid that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, um, I didn't know I wanted to be a writer, but you know when you're when you're sitting in front of a classroom or or you know sashaying around a classroom is more a description of what I used to do. Um, you um, you it's it's a a classroom is a kind of theater. Now I don't mean by that that you know you're there to entertain your students, but you know entertainment can you know yeah, you help to, to sell the lesson, and so um, you know I'm I'm sort of com- I was always sort of comfortable in that role. I could make my classes fun. I could get serious. Uh, I, you know, I could scowl and get them, you know, whipped back into shape if I needed to. But then, when I became a writer, how long did you teach? Excuse me. Uh, I I taught high school for twenty five years, you did, yeah. and then I taught creative writing at the University of Connecticut for a couple of yeah. years. And I'm still teaching, you know, in the yeah, prison, in prison workshop. Yeah. So um, I've always been in my adulthood. I've always been a teacher, but. Um, I love the book tour. Um, I love okay. the the exchange, the interacting uh, with the interaction with the readers. Right. Yeah. And when I started, I, I started writing back in nineteen eighty one, I think it was. And I remember for my first Father's Day, I had just become a, a first time father, and my wife uh, Chris gave me uh, for a Father's Day present uh, this sort of cutting edge writing tool it was called an electric typewriter <laughs> not only it was not only a typewriter but you could plug it in uh, and I thought that that was you know very you know very you know cutting edge and now in terms of the technology of course there's you know there's so much more to be had but that's also true when you publish a book you can go out in the world without necessarily traveling right um, right you can sort of have those conversations to a degree. Without leaving your house, kind of thing, right? Yeah, I just got through before you and I sat down to talk. I just did a a Facebook Live thing, and um, and I had I had a great time. The questions were good, and you know we were we were laughing together and so forth. And you know that that kind yeah, of thing exactly is yeah. you know never happened. You know it never happened to me before in publishing. Uh, you know, having started uh, the publishing end of it in 1992, uh, this is my first experience with that, and. Um, so I think it's really cool. As far as the frustrating part, I I'm 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 a little frustrated, a little scared that people seem to be maybe as a culture less interested in um, in reading and long form um, reading. Yeah, I'm I'm nervous about the shrinkage in in uh, in the book industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, I'm I'm still confident that. You know, we storytellers are going to be around yeah. uh, because it's such a primal thing. To, yeah, you know, and it's it's just irreplaceable. Yeah. I love your department. I love the audio because that seems to be even more primal than books with pages, you know? Yeah, and so what are, you, what are your listening habits? Um, as far as books? Yeah. Uh, I do listen to audio books. Um, I am more inclined to listen to music um, mm-hmm. while you're working. While I'm working, yep. I buy music, you know, 
way too much music, I think. Uh, but I just love to surround myself with a variety of things that I can listen to. And um, I'm, a, I'm a pretty interested eavesdropper, too. I, uh, one of the thing, yeah, fun I'm a things, compulsive eavesdropper. Yeah. Are you really? And yeah. my kids are, too. Yeah. I, and my mother was, I am, and my children are. I, um, I, 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 that's one of the fun things about being in New York, you know, riding, <laughs> yes. riding the subway. All the time, all day long. I sometimes just ride the subway, not because <laughs> I have to go someplace, but I just want to hear what people are talking about, um, which can be frustrating now in this era because everybody's on their cell phone. It's you don't hear as, so much conversation. Much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, but I know that you're genuinely excited that your next conversation is going to be with your audiobook narrator, George yeah. B. Dahl, which is so sweet. And I, I'm so happy that you're pleased with that. And so I thank you so very much for all the work that you've given us. And I thank you very much for your time today. I, I really appreciate it. I had, I had fun talking to you. And I know I'm going to have fun talking with George because he's yep. always a good time. He is. And I'll let him in. He's next up. All right. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard. And if you have, that you'll subscribe. To do so, you just go to your podcast app, search for Harper Audio Presents, and click subscribe. That way, you'll never miss a conversation of publisher plus author plus microphone. 